0: One of the authors I read this week tells of coming across a billboard on the highway with a simple question, who is your father, who is your father? All of us desire to belong, we want to know our lineage, the father who brought us into this world. In a world of questionable reproductive practices, surrogate mothers, sperm donors, the question of who is one's father takes on a more immediate meaning. But all of us, even if we are adopted, have a desire to know where we are from. We want to know the family in which we have been born the parents to which we've been born. The Apostle Paul answers this question, who is your father in this third chapter of Galatians? And he reminds the Galatians that God is their father, that more accurately that they are children or sons of God. He tells us this in Galatians 3, 26 to 29. But the content of the passage, for those of you who have been with us, know that we have been looking at this matter of how one becomes a child of God, how does one become a Christian. And the question was of major importance because there were these Judaizers, these Jewish Christians who believed in Christ to be Savior but also believed that one had to keep the Old Testament law to be saved. And Paul would insist that one does not have to keep the law, purity laws or be circumcised in order to be saved. He would argue from experience that when they became Christians, it was not by keeping the law but rather by faith. He would argue from scripture that Abraham himself, the father of the Jewish nation, was justified in the sight of God not on the basis of doing anything but by faith. Abraham believed God, he tells us in verse 6, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul therefore argues that one, that the person who believes like Abraham will also receive justification. In other words, God will declare that sinner to be righteous in his sight. Paul will continue to press the point that those who attempt to keep the law are under a curse because no one can actually keep the law perfectly. He however, assures them that Christ delivers them, redeems them from the curse of the law by becoming himself a curse for us. The apostle Paul in verses 15 then all the way to chapter 4, verse 11, begins to treat the matter of the law. The Old Testament law and its relationship to the Christian. And Paul informs them, just by looking at human covenants, he reminds them that the law that was given to Moses can never make the promise to God, God that God gave to Abraham obsolete. He argues that human covenants and human promise, at least when ratified, is binding. And so if human covenant is binding, then God's covenant with Abraham is also binding. He will press on and and teach that the Mosaic law, not only does it not render the promise to Abraham obsolete, but that this Mosaic law that came, it came 430 years after God had originally promised Abraham these blessings. And so he's, he's saying that the covenant with Abraham, the promises that God made to Abraham have this priority and permanence that cannot be revoked by the Mosaic law. He also goes on to to state that the law that that was given was temporary and provisional. Third, he says the law was given by mediation through angels. And the comparison there is of course the the promise of God. The promise of God was given directly from God to Abraham. And so he's saying essentially that the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of God to Abraham supersedes the law. So the question then becomes more important, what then of the law? Is the law irrelevant? What is the purpose and function of the law? And Paul uses precise language to tell us the role of the law, the Old Testament covenant, the Mosaic covenant. You will notice he tells them In verse 22, but the scriptures have confirmed all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. In verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Earlier he tells them that the law was given because of transgression in verse 19, the law was added because of transgression, the law was there to define sin, it was given there to provoke sin, yes to provoke sin, Paul would have us understand, you know, and I'm sorry if I have a repeat on an illustration that I've used on many occasions but anyone who has young children know that as soon as they start walking around they start touching things that they are not supposed to do and parents, you know, like to give laws and lay down laws and rules We'll set a bunch of rules for these little toddlers running around, don't touch the stove, don't play with my stereo. Don't play with the TV remote, you know what it is, right? And the kid never thought of touching any of those things until you went ahead and pointed out to them, don't touch it. And what is he going to do? The first time you lay on a rule, don't touch something, sure enough they're going to go and touch it. Because fundamentally these cuties that are running around are rebellious. They have a sinful nature just like the rest of us. And the law was given to reveal the state of rebellion in the heart. For as God has revealed his law, it is the desire of man to break it. And so Paul says, the law was given because of transgression. But ultimately in verse 24, he says, the law was our tutor. Pedagogues. The law was our tutor. This term tutor was used of a slave who was given responsibility to care for and to discipline children. The law was our pedagoguer. The law was our nanny or babysitter, but a strict babysitter. And the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. It was pointing us to Jesus Christ. That salvation is to be found in Jesus Christ. Paul says, now that Christ has come, the law has now passed. Is now, is, has now passed. And so what he's arguing here is that after faith has come, we are no longer under tutor, we are no longer under the law because Christ has come and faith has come, we are no longer under the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Now, this being the reality that the law pointed us to Christ, there is now a change in era from the age of the law to the age of Christ. Paul says that there are certain ramifications of this change from being under the law now to being in Christ. First of all he tells them that Christians are children of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now that we are no longer under the old covenant or the old law, he says the upshot of this is first of all we are children of God. He's going to make three major statements about us. And the first thing he tells us about Christians, believers, is that they are children of God through faith in Christ. The, son, the term that he uses is the sons of God, the expression sons of God. But it really refers to sons and daughters of God. For He says, for, we, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And this, this language of sonship refers to our adoption and by the way in chapter 4, 1-7 to 7, he's going to flesh out adoption and so we're going to, we're not going to say everything we can say on the subject here this morning. But adoption, at least the Westminster Catechism defines it as the act of God's free grace by which we are received into the number and that we are given them the rights and privileges of sons. To be sons of God or children of God refers to the most intimate of God's blessings to hit to us. In other words, we become a member of God's family and God becomes our father. Now Paul says, now that faith has come, now that we are no longer under the law, we are all sons of God. And first of all, you will notice that You'll notice the extensive scope of the status of sons of God. He says, for you are all sons of God. In fact, in the original, all is in the emphatic position in the Greek. You are all sons of God. Paul reminds them that as Christians, that each and every Christian is a child of God. He does not say that every person who is born into this world is automatically a child of God, but rather, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So the extensive scope, and the reason Paul has to press this point that they are all sons of God, it is precisely because the Judaizers, these teachers who had come from Jerusalem were saying to the Galatians, you you do not quite belong to God's people because you have not kept the law, for you to really belong to God's people, to be one of us, to be legitimate children of God, you need to be circumcised, you need to observe the purity Laws, you need to observe the food laws in the Old Covenant. Then you can legitimately claim to be children of God. And Paul says, no, the age of the law has passed. Faith has come, Christ has come, and that means that we are all children of God. That is, the extensive nature, all of us who profess Him are children of God. But he tells us this, and Paul emphasizes that believers are presently children of God. If you read in Romans 8, 14 and 15, he says, for as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba Father. True, sure, we, we are presently in this life children of God. Uh, he could say in Romans eight nineteen that not only is the status of being a child of God, a present reality, but it is a future reality for, he says, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. So in a sense we we are here in this world, children of God, but we are waiting a great unveiling, a great manifestation when God will reveal us. There is a sense in which we are children of God and we are kept under wraps in this world. But when we see him, we will be fully revealed as children of God. And so he says we are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But he tells us secondly about our status, not only it is extensive for we are all children of God, but he tells us about the means by which we became sons of God. He says you are all children of God, and here it is, through faith in Christ Jesus so that we did not enter into the family of God by physical descent from Abraham, no they receive the status of children by faith, by believing in Christ, that it is the exercise of faith by which they are considered and given the right to be children of God. John could have stated this earlier in the Gospel of John in John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. He says, for as many as received him, he gave them the right, the exousia, the authority to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Who are born, he says, not of bloods, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so what is he saying? He's saying that those who are children of God are those who are born of God, who have been regenerated by God's Spirit, and those who believe consequently in the name of Christ. But it is by faith, Paul tells us here in Galatians 3, that we are sons of God. For you are all sons of God, here's the means, through faith in Christ Jesus. But he tells us the grounds, why, why is it that we are children of God? Well in verse 27 he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We have seen the extensive scope of our sonship, we are all children of God, we have seen the means of our sonship, it is through faith in Christ and now we see the ground of our sonship is because of our union with Christ. He says, he describes now union in verse 27 by two images. The first image is of baptism. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The reason why we are children of God is because we have been baptized into Christ. And baptized into Christ simply refers to our joining, our spiritual union with Christ. Paul will use baptism in this sense, for instance in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, that is the body of Christ, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink in one spirit. Perhaps more closer to our text is Romans 6, 3 and 4 where Paul states, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in units of life. When a person is converted, the Spirit of God indwells that individual, changes the heart, and joins that person to Christ in a spiritual union. The same Spirit who is in Christ The same Spirit of Christ comes and dwells within us. And because of that, we are joined to Christ. We are incorporated into Christ. We are baptized or brought into the sphere of Christ. We are in union with him. And when we are baptized in water, and by the way, every believer must be baptized because it is commanded in Scripture. But when we are baptized physically, when we descend in the water, we are saying, "Up." A resounding no to the old way of life. We are saying that we are not going to live in sin anymore. And when we are raised, we are saying not only have we died with Christ to the sins of this world, but we are raised with Christ to a new way of life. Baptism then is indeed a symbol of a spiritual change that God has brought in our lives. That we are no longer the same persons we were. We're not going to live for ourselves or live for sin. We're going to live a new life in Christ. We are new people in Christ. But when we are baptized we are saying an affirmative yes to Christ. We are joined to him. Baptism that is a sign that we are joined to Christ. He uses another imagery of our union with Christ that of being clothed with Christ or put on Christ he says verse 28 verse 27 for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ and we have been over this ground before when we were in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14 Paul says put on the Lord Jesus Christ to put on Christ simply refers to wearing his image being clothed with his character with his mind and with his actions or particularly His behavior, His conduct. What this states here, the, the, the reality of being baptized into Christ and putting on Christ refer to the same reality, we are joined to Him. But if there is an nuance it is this, that when we are joined to Christ we are joined in a spiritual union because the Spirit of God places us in Christ. But when we are joined to Christ, when we are united to Christ, we are also in a moral union because we put on the character of Christ. We exhibit the character of Christ. And Paul is saying that these who have believed in Christ are sons of God. And the reason they are sons of God and children of God is because they are joined to Christ. But, but I know that still you, you may not grasp why being joined to Christ makes us children of God. It is because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the unique Son of God. Three times Paul tells us this. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 16 he reminds them that that, that God has been pleased to reveal his Son in me. He calls Christ the Son of God. In chapter 2 verse 20 he says I no longer live, the life I live I no longer live by the flesh. He says, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And he lives now by faith, he says, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In chapter 4, he reminds us in verse 4 that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. What makes us children of God, it is because we are united to the Son of God. Jesus is the Son, capital S, and we are sons, small s. Our sonship, our filial relationship to God, the reason we are son, sons of God, it is because we are in the Son of God. And Paul tells these Galatians, you don't have to become Jews. You don't have to go back to the Old Testament to keep the law to be sons of God, merely by being A believer in Christ and being joined to him, you are children of God. Our sonship depends upon the sonship of Jesus. So the first point he makes to them is that now they are no longer under the law, they are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But Paul says there is something else that this means for us now that we are no longer under the law and are in Christ. He says secondly, Christians are not only sons of God, Christians are one in the Lord. And that's what he states in verse 28 there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female for you are all one in christ jesus there are divisions in society today as surely as there were divisions in the 1st century paul lists three main divisions in 1st century society the division of race the division of rank and the division of sex or gender. Paul says there is no there is neither Jew nor Greek. The division of race was prominent in the first century. The Jews divided life and divided humanity in two camps in two categories you were either a Jew or you were a Gentile and they looked at everybody as including Greeks as Gentiles And by Gentiles, they were talking about people who were idolatrous, who were immoral, and who were spiritually unclean. The Greeks on the other hand looked at everybody else, including the Jews, as barbarians, uncultured. They considered themselves to be the cradle of civilization and everybody else around them were barbarians. Paul says, in Christ this has changed. There is neither Jew nor Greek. He takes up the second division between that of slave and free men. It was the greatest privilege to be a citizen was the greatest privilege of a Roman. And the Romans looked down on slaves as inferior and they considered them no better than the cattle they owned. Paul says there is neither slave nor free. He looks at the third line of demarcation between people, that of gender or sex, this female-male separation and this perhaps was the most glaring, the most enduring of separating lines throughout history. You will know that in ancient times the attitude of men towards women was particularly despicable. It was true in Judaism, there was a Jewish writer, Jesus Ben Syriac in the second century BC who wrote the work of of Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, which was a Jewish writing, a moral, a moral tome. He had some pretty harsh words for women and particularly bad wives. Let me give you a sample of what he thought about women who were not great wives. He says, I I would sooner keep house with a lion or a dragon than keep house with a spiteful woman. Or no wickedness comes anywhere near the wickedness of a woman. Sin began with a woman and thanks to her, we must all die. He had one simple advice, one simple advice for dealing with difficult women, get rid of them. In the Mishnah and the Babylonian Talmud which were also Jewish writings, they were not even sparing on women. They had prayers to God and they had statements. One of them read like this, let the teaching of the Torah be burned but let them not be handed over to a woman. And one of, one of them had a prayer, I thank you Lord because you have not made me a woman. Now you may think that was particularly bad, but the Greco-Roman culture was no better because they did not believe in educating women. They considered women as, as having two main purposes, to bear healthy children, or no, I'm sorry, to bear healthy sons and to take care of domestic matters. Paul utters what must be considered revolutionary words, he says, neither male nor female. Now we need to, we, I think that we need to qualify however what Paul is saying here, we need to put it in context. We need to first of all caution that when Paul says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, Jew nor Greek, or free nor slave, or male nor female. Paul is not saying that when one becomes a Christian, the obvious differences, like racial differences or differences in society or difference in sex or gender, that these things have disappeared because that would be foolish. So so we're not saying he's saying that all distinctions have gone away. Secondly, we are not to use this verse as the feminists have done to say that Paul is arguing that there is no such thing as roles within the family or in the church. This is not a verse that is talking about the roles that we should have in the church. When Paul says that there is now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. Neither male nor female, what he's saying is that when you become a child of God, that these things have no substantial effect. That these things are not of prominence or importance. That one does not become a child of God on the basis of his rank in society or his sex or his race. None of these things are important for becoming a child of God. That God saves us, God receives us irrespective of our rank or race or our sex. It means therefore that to be united to Christ means to be united to one another, that all believers are essentially, and in terms of our status, we are on equal footing in Christ, whether we be free, whether we be slaves, whether we be men or women, whether we be black or white, we are all one in Christ because we are in Jesus Christ. This point is repeated in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, 13 to 16, Paul reminds them, But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He reminds the... Ephesians in chapter four, verses three and four, he says that they are to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, as you recall into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. He says that they belong to one body, one church. they practice one faith, they have one hope, they share one Holy Spirit, they have one Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. They participate in one baptism, they have one God and Father and because they are in Christ, because they share this communion with Christ and with one another, they are one and therefore all other distinctions are irrelevant, non-essential. They are one, they are one because they are in Christ and so Jews and Gentiles must be perceived as one in Jesus Christ. What does it mean? It means that you and I are children of God. That's the first reality. Second reality, it means that you and I are one in Christ. But thirdly Paul tells them not only are they one, he says that they are now heirs, Abraham's seed and heirs of the promise in verse 29. In fact verse 29 summarizes the chapter because this is the point Paul has been at pains to And if you are Christ, he says that is, if you belong to Christ, then you are abraham 's seed, and, and the logic is, of course, Christ is abraham 's seed. we are in Christ, therefore we are, because of our union abraham 's seed. If you are Christ, then you are abraham 's seed, and not only are you abraham 's seed, you are heirs, according to the promise, the promise that God made to Abraham have now been given to us. And what are the promises that God made to Abraham? Well there are at least two that Paul Paul points out in this chapter. First of all in verses 8 and 9 we see the first, that is the promise of justification. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, that is blessed with justification. We are children of God, we are united, we are one with one another, and not only that, we are inheritors of the promise. And we have inherited, Paul says, the promise of justification. Those who believe have had their legal status changed by God. We are no longer legally condemned as sinners, we have been declared righteous by God because of faith. The second blessing that we have received, we are now inheritors of the promise, is the gift of the Spirit. Again, earlier Paul says that Christ redeemed us in verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. And he defines the blessing of Abraham, that we might receive the promise of God's spirit, the spirit through faith. And so the children of God are not only one with one another, they are heirs of the promise that they have received blessings. Surely we will receive the eschatological blessings in the future. But in this life we now enjoy justification and we now enjoy the gift of the Holy Spirit. You must, friends, see Jesus as the climax of redemptive history. We need to make sure that when we are reading our Bibles we are reading them correctly. There are people today who would argue that we must keep the old covenant. We must live like people who are under Moses and so there is a pressure to keep the law and to do things like observe the Sabbath, refrain from eating pork or some other kind of food. That teaching fails to realize the flow of redemptive history, what God revealed to Noah was not the same as that was revealed to Abraham. And what was revealed to Abraham is not the same that was revealed to David. There is this progression, this upward flow in the biblical revelation. You and I need to know where we stand in biblical revelation. We stand in the new covenant, in the new age. We are not under the old ritualistic covenants. You know, I I say to people, you know, (laughs) let's be very careful. Because if you want to keep the law, there are a whole lot of them in the old covenant. One simple one of them is don't wear any kind of clothing that is mixed in fabric. Wool and polyester, wrong. I mean if you, really, if you really want to do that, you're going to land yourself in a quagmire. Remember Paul before says that anyone who attempts to keep the law is cursed. Why? Because he can never keep it fully. Paul says the purpose of the law was to drive us to Christ. The law was our tutor to bring us to Jesus. The law was there to teach us that you cannot on your own please God. You need Christ. And so, therefore, when we read the Bible, we must read the scriptures and the Old Testament through Christological lens. We must interpret the Old Testament through Christ. And the things that are being taken over from the Old Testament by Christ in the New Testament are to be enjoined upon us. We are not now saying that the Old Testament is of no value because the Old Testament is foundational, it is authoritative because it is God's word. It reveals God's nature. It reveals God's will. But in terms of precedence, we are no longer living under the old covenant, we are under the new covenant and it is Jesus Christ who must interpret the the old covenant for us. Having said that, we need to recognize secondly that not only must we read scripture then through Christ as the climax of redemptive history we must receive the status of children. Our 21st century Western society is undergoing a crisis of identity and by consequence, as a consequence a crisis of significance and meaning. For decades atheists and atheistic Philosophers and people committed to evolution have been telling us that you and I are here by accident, that we are the product of chance and the product of matter and time. That we have no God and we are not connected to a supreme being. And by denying then our connection to God, they have unwittingly undercut all meaning and significance for life. Because it is God who gives us meaning and significance. The Apostle Paul comes onto the scene. He does not tell you that you are a product of chance and matter and time, but that you are a child of God. That you have a father, that you have meaning, that you have value, that your life here is of significance. That you and I can find our true worth as being children of God. There is no greater privilege than to be associated with God. Than to have God saying, you are my son and you are my daughter and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That you can be strong and you can be courageous because wherever you go I am there with you. You have the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power who keeps you. You belong somewhere. You belong to the greatest being in the world. You belong to God. And you need to know that you have a father in heaven to whom you can come, to whom you can speak, to whom you can make your request. You can say to him, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You can say to him, thine is the kingdom, and thine is the power, and thine is the glory. You can say to him, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us for all our trespasses. Why? Because you have a Father whose ears are open to you. You are a son of God. And you are under his protection and care. He has given you a legal status. But you need to know that to be a child of God, there is something that you must do. And what is it? It is that you must believe you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And and, and by the way, faith is not merely agreement with facts. It is to cast yourself upon Christ. It is to look at Jesus and realize that he is the Son of God. That he came into the world. That he took on flesh and blood. That he lived and perfectly kept the law for you. That he suffered on the cross. That he paid for all of your sins. However bad and wretched you have been. However wayward and sinful you have lived. That Jesus Christ paid with his blood on the cross. That he died as a payment for our sins. And those who become children of God are those who renounce their sins. They turn their back on their sinful lifestyle. And they claim Christ. They rest upon him, they receive him by faith, they look to his cross as the final answer for all their sins. They say, Lord I take you to be my savior. Have you done that? Have you said to him, Jesus I take you to be mine? Because when you do that by faith, you become a child of God. God gives you a new birth certificate that says that you belong to him, that you are his for here and for tomorrow and for eternity. But you must take Christ, you must depend upon Christ as your only savior who died for your sins and if you do that by faith, I wonder if you have come here and you're still in your sins, will you believe in Jesus, will you take him, will you abandon your sins and rest on Christ and leave this place the great news of the gospel is that you can leave here as a son or a daughter of God by believing in Jesus Christ. You can have this status but you must come in humility, in repentance and in faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally friends, you must remember that when you become a child of God that you also become brothers and sisters in Christ, that when you are joined to Christ by faith you're also joined to other Christians, that in, in short, we are in this together. Caspar Frederick has a painting, a famous painting called Wonder Above the Mist. And Wonder Above the Mist is a painting in which the landscape is covered in mist. And out of the mist there is this jagged mountain peak. And on the top of the mountain stands a man with his hands clasped behind his back surveying the field before him. It's a picture of modern man who has risen to the summit of his physical and intellectual prowess and done so on his own without God. He stands on top of the mountain enjoying his success with no one else. It's the picture of individualism. But when you become a Christian, the Bible does not so emphasize individualism as it does collectivism. That we are in Christ together. That we aren't standing alone. That we are part of a body, a body much vaster than this congregation, an international body of believers. We are part of the church of Christ. We are in this together. Perhaps the best picture that I can tell you of what it means to be in Christ together is another picture that I see of tourists who visit Negril and Dunsreal Falls. These are people who have come from around the world. They don't know one another from a bar of soap but they want to climb, they want to climb River Falls. and the climb is treacherous. They have guides who get these strangers to link their hands and form a human chain. And they climb this treacherous fall one step at a time, but all of them locked together holding hands. And they all together climb this treacherous fall and arrive at the top together. That's I believe a better picture of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. We are not that sole figure standing on the mount of triumph alone. We are standing together with those who have climbed this difficult and treacherous road through this life until we get to heaven. You need to know that when you become a believer you must be part of the church. It is absolute folly to believe that we can be Christians and do our own thing and worship by ourselves and do our own thing, it cannot be done. I hear this argument as I go around in preaching, people telling me, we we don't need the church. But you can't be a Christian without being part of the church. And let me tell you this, I would rather be a part of an imperfect church. I'd rather be a part of a church that is being perfected than not to be a part of the church because to to be a separate from the church is to be a part of the world. You give me the church even at its lowest ebb, I will be proud to be a part of that because that is God's people. And he who began a good work in them will complete the work which he begins. The church is being perfected and you need to know that you are part of the body, you are one with believers, you are in Christ together. Anthony Hakima is one of my favorite theologians. He fleshes out what it means to be in Christ together. He gives us five things that we must do if we're in Christ together, I'm going to leave you with these. He says first of all to be in Christ together means that we should give thanks daily for one another. When the last of you thank God for anything else apart from money and your family and so on. He says we should pray for one another because we're in Christ together. Third, he says we must see Christ in one another. Instead of finding fault in other Christians, we should look at what Christ has done for them and what Christ is doing in them. Fourth, he says, we must maintain our unity in Christ. We are one flock and we have one shepherd. We must therefore be of the same mind and we must maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And finally, fifth, he says, we must deal with each other as forgiven sinners. We have been forgiven and justified by God. Let us not judge one another harshly, he says. But let's forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. Now that we are no longer under the law, and the law has led us to Christ, we have the glorious privilege of being children of God. It means that we are one with other believers, and it means that we are inheritors of heaven's promises and blessings, particularly justification by faith and the gift of the Spirit. May God help us then to cherish these blessings and to live in union with one another, for Christ's sake. Amen.